0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, my name is Ian Drake and this is the New Books Network. Today we are joined by Philip Baim. He studied at the State Academy of Theatre in Warsaw, Poland and has directed extensively on both sides of the Atlantic. He is for our purposes, most relevant to our discussion today is a translator. He's translated more than 30 novels and plays, mostly by German and Polish writers. He is also uh, a founder or co-founder of the Upstream Theater in St. Louis, Missouri, which he founded in 2004. And his honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship and two NEA fellowships, National Endowment for the Arts, and numerous awards for his translations. Philip, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for inviting me. So the reason I invited you today is to discuss a novel that you translated uh, in the last few years that was published in 2019. Originally published in 1940, it is Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, and thanks for being uh, discussing this, uh, because I I think it's an important book, and no doubt you do as well. And so what I want to do is begin by talking about uh, the importance of this novel, and let's start with the plot, first and foremost. Uh, Darkness at Noon sounds like an oxymoron, but it applies to this kind of dystopian, uh, Soviet-like authoritarian state that's depicted in the novel. You want to give us a brief outline of the plot? Sure.
0: Uh, the the plot centers on the imprisonment and trial of a fictional character who was modeled after one of the leading old guard figures in the uh, a Bolshevik or uh, well, the old guard Bolsheviks uh, that had spearheaded the Russian Revolution and then had set about forming the Soviet state. Uh, And after the death of Lenin in the mid-twenties and the subsequent back and forth within the Politburo uh, infighting and the various factions, as Stalin consolidated power, he began to purge off any number of these uh, old guard uh, Bolsheviks. Uh, And this fictional character, Rubashov, uh, is an amalgamation of several of those, Uh, and while the book does not specifically state that it takes place in the Soviet Union uh, for all intents and purposes. That's the, the setting. Uh, so we are introduced to Rubashov in the first chapter. He has just been imprisoned and the book takes place. It sounds like not a very thrilling plot because he's there's not the action that precedes. <laughs> there's no chase scene or anything. He is in prison. Uh, the cell door is, is shutting behind him as the book begins. Uh, there, are, there are several interrogations, and there are his ruminations. And the book weaves together these, these months in prison, uh, the daily life uh, uh, that he experienced in prison, uh, with these more philosophical ruminations, as well as some flashbacks into his deeds uh, as a leading uh, member of the party. So in the course of the novel, uh, we, we are exposed to a number of uh, the, the prisoners uh, as well as life in in that Soviet prison. And most importantly, there are, are his reflections, uh, which can steer us also to, to reflect on uh, his you know, becoming a, a, a victim a uh, Of something that he helped create. Uh, This was one of the chief models for this character was uh, Bukharin, who was himself uh, purged by Stalin in in the late 1930s. And this edition has an introduction by Michael Scammell that also offers uh, some uh, very nice historical background.
1: In addition to uh, the novel itself, at the end, there's an appendix uh, of the part of the trial transcript from what I think we can reasonably describe as a show trial of Bukharin, um in 1938, which is only a couple of years or about a year or so before Kessler actually authored his novel. And uh, it's amazing. It's strikingly similar in terms of the modes of interaction with the state prosecutor. And so it, it's a interesting addition to the uh, fictional work this non fiction trial transcript.
0: Absolutely. And I think what what fascinated Kessler and what shocked so many people who had been sympathetic to uh, leftist causes that led to, you know, and, and they'd been sympathetic to the Soviet Union, and then many wound up, many prominent uh, European leftists and also in the US wound up as apologists uh, for the Stalin regime up to a point. And Kessler himself. Uh, was a disaffected uh, communist, um, and uh, uh, I think what what shocked a lot of people was the idea that someone like Abu Bukharin would confess that they would confess to what were obviously to having committed what were obviously trumped up uh, crimes and you know in, invented uh, espionage or accusations of trying to poison Lenin or you name it and. Why did they confess? And of course, the first, the gut reaction was to say, well, they were obviously tortured in prison. But Kessler was interested in something else, and here we have a character who is not going to yield to torture, and his his interrogators realize this. Especially, there are, one of the interrogators himself falls victim to the purge. I won't develop too much of the plot, but. Why is he going to confess? And, and he he reasons himself into this this confession. And that's I think the Bukharan transcript at the end of the book uh, is an example of this. Uh, in other words, they are so committed to this cause, and perhaps also to save someone, to save their family. There may be other motives, but it's also possible that their very commitment to this cause leads them to believe that they have that they have uh, dug a hole from which they themselves an ideological hole from which they cannot escape and so they are ensnared in their own thinking and their only logical consequence is to go along and defend the cause that they had been advancing for so long
1: i too was struck by the lack of torture in the book. Uh, The only torture or something even close to it seems to be the deprivation of sleep that Rubashov experiences uh, throughout the book. But nevertheless, he's never actually physically uh, coerced into saying anything. He does it of apparently his own volition. And as the Scammell introduction uh, indicates, this may have been... uh, a, a point that, and of course, we I, I don't think we, at least there's no indication that we know exactly why Kessler uh, depicted it this way, but nevertheless, it seems to be that even at the end when death seems to be the inevitable outcome for someone like Rubashov and others like him, that this kind of archetypal character is still at heart trying to give meaning to their lives, and maybe this is the last service that they do for the Communist Party?
0: Yes, exactly. And uh, I think that that that's back to this idea of commitment, and, and, and to what extent they may or may not have become blinded to the excesses that very ideological commitment led to is, of course, uh, one of the main subjects in, in the novel. And the... The tragedy, I think, at the heart of this figure is that he is – he does have this awareness, and so he's battling within himself. And if, if it weren't for the fact that he's com- a committed atheist, uh, w- we could talk about uh, his soul, a, a battle for his soul, as it were. But it's, but it's a, a kind of communistic battle for the, the ideological soul.
1: As you mentioned earlier, there's not much of what we would think of as action in this. This is not a thriller from the Cold War. Rather, this is what I suppose we would today describe as a psychological novel where we explore the motivations of the chief character and uh, he only encounters a very few um, ancillary characters that help propel the plot along. I I thought it was notable... That in part in one of his uh, Rubashov's recollections, uh, he recalls seeing a Pietà from a museum, and can you explain what you think might be the purpose for that imagery and that uh, sometimes sporadic uh, reference that he makes to the having seen that in the museum at one point?
0: Well, he recalls a meeting because one of his duties. Uh, as a in his position in the in the party, and he had a very he had a very high position. Not necessarily within the government, but within the party, and the party uh, had in the 1930s. The party was supporting communist parties through the common turn throughout the world, and especially in Europe, and especially. In places like Germany or Western Europe, um, and he was in charge of some of these foreign uh, foreign efforts. Uh, and in this meeting that he's he's recalling, there's there's a man who, but we have to have a, a kind of historical snapshot in. The 1930s, Germany in the at the onset of the 1930s, the German Communist Party was very strong, and of course the the battling that then went on between the the communists and the nascent Nazi Party was, was was very much in the news. Um, uh, as we know, the, the Nazis won, and they they decimated. They they one of the first one of their first acts was to round up communists and send them to concentration camps or or murder them uh, it was it, the the communist party was in shambles and yet and yet the directive coming from moscow and moscow had the supreme was the supreme command of the Comintern, the directives continued to be uh, very very much at odds with the reality of the situation. So here you have Rubashov is going to discipline someone who had broken party discipline and to break party discipline was uh, an infraction worthy of, of being expelled from the party and in the case for being exposed as uh, uh, as a communist in Nazi Germany, which would be tantamount to a death sentence. And so he realizes what's going to happen when he, as a result of his disciplining, this this man, uh, but he's in a he's in a museum and he catches this image of this the Pietà, and that, and, but he can't quite see the entire uh, painting and he's trying to. Th- th- there's a, some solace in that painting and of course it goes back to a, a religious image, uh, and, and I think that the. The idea that he hasn't quite seen the entire picture—we could take that as a metaphor. Uh, we could also take the awareness of uh, of the imagery, the of the meaning of the Pietà, and we could we could look for uh, you know some underlying you know, consciousness on on Rubashov's part, um, you know that that. It, that will reappear in the book as he examines many of his deeds from a different point of morality, from a from a different moral compass than simply did it serve the interests of the party or not,
1: and possibly the hope of redemption. Possibly, yes, exactly. Now, the cliche about writing is to write what you know, and as you mentioned earlier, Kessler himself had been a member of the Communist Party. Uh, but also, as was indicated in the introduction by Mr. Scammell, he had essentially been a Communist Party agent for a time during the Spanish Civil War, and later, when he returned to Spain to cover the war as a journalist, he was actually imprisoned, and it indicates or suggests that he himself had feared actually being executed, as some of his fellow prisoners had been. Um, oh, the- yes,
0: yes, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Does this uh this certainly gives a uh, probably a realistic disposition in portraying the psychological disposition of Rubashov? Absolutely,
0: it makes it very real.
1: Uh, and
0: and when you're describing a novel from a, what what's in a cell, there are so few things in a cell, but the tactile presence of this cell is very important. And that was one of uh, my hopes in, in translating the novel that was to also be able to translate that that tactile presence of these prison conditions. He also, among his fellow prisoners were people who developed this, used this this ancient prison means of communication tapping on the cell wall, which figures prominently in the novel and it's, it's, it lends another kind of dimension to the book, I think. Uh, the different types of communication, uh, the, the, the communication among prisoners, the communication from the guards, you know, wh- who is sympathetic, who isn't. And what what can you do? What can you convey through tapping? What kind of emotion can you convey through tapping? I mean, you know, right now we we sometimes look at each other wearing masks in the in the, in the supermarket and our, our faces are, are diminished, but we're still conveying things with our eyes. Well, imagine you're just tapping through a wall and, and how can you, we, we always find ways to express some uh, I- emotion to our communication. And uh, that's a fascinating part of the book, I think.
1: That's right. As you mentioned, uh, we're wearing masks. We're recording this interview in March, mid-March of 2021, and we are still in the midst of the pandemic, uh, and the expectation, sometimes requirement, that people wear masks in different settings. And so, you're you're quite right that there's this isolated uh, feel based on the infrastructure that we live in. And certainly, Rubashov and his fellow prisoners were kept in isolation. They're not supposed to talk to each other. They do go out into the exercise yard, but even then. They, Even though they're uh, physically in greater proximity to each other, they're not supposed to communicate. And so uh, on the one hand, we get a sense for the, the isolation that one experiences uh, in this prison context. At the same time, you had mentioned earlier that one of his interrogators, uh, he goes by the name of Ivanov in the book. He interrogates him for a time. He's actually a former colleague of Rubashov's when they were both prominent in the party, and now he's his interrogator. And it's not giving uh, the ending away at all to note that Ivanov himself experiences some of the arbitrary um, prosecutions and persecutions that the party can exact on its members. And it seems to me that this is another element of the, the Soviet Communist Party that Kessler wanted to convey, which is how the revolution really began to eat its own through the show trials.
0: Yes, and it's important to note Rubashov was also a leader in the civil war, and the image that is uh, that comes up repeatedly, and and here a literal image is of the, the 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 party leaders and the partisan leaders. Uh, during the Civil War, and Rubashov was a hero uh, in the Civil War, and Ivanov was uh, also very active, and it, it, Ivanov had suffered uh, a, a wound and, and had to have a leg amputated, and Rubashov had, had basically uh, saved him by telling him he had to, you know, he could, don't think about committing suicide, and you'll you know, get through this, and and now the tables, uh, we, we go forward many, many years. The civil war's long over. The Soviet state had been established, and Ivanov, who was an old colleague from the war, is now sitting across the interrogator's table from Rubashov, and basically saying to Rubashov, "I'm not going to let you commit suicide either." <laughs> so, so that's an interesting twist. But yes, as the as the uh, novel progresses, uh, we, we discover. Uh, through a series of these these flashbacks as well uh, the the backstory of of the party uh, we can, can piece it together and the warning that in their in their belief in the infallibility of their cause the, many of these party leaders were unaware that they were also setting up a system that could be so easily Uh, corrupted, that their ideological track uh, seemed to be clear, but the 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 train could be so easily derailed um, by one person, uh, and that is, of course, uh, what what happened.
1: It seems to me that um, it would have been perhaps difficult to know what motivated people to act within the party. It might have been ideological enthusiasm but also there's this ever uh, apparently ever present fear of your fellow party members and so you know the conformity that is and we see this even today of course in places like Mm -hmm. uh, North Korea and China and other dictatorial regimes wherein conformity is an expectation and fear is perhaps or no doubt present or omnipresent through people's lives and it reminded me of, a, I read a biography of uh, Dmitry Soshtakovich <laughs> and his experiences uh, in the Soviet state. He was in Leningrad during uh, the war and the, the siege of Leningrad. Yes, he was. And um, he had to, uh, I recall one incident, he had to report uh, and he feared that he was going to be arrested when he reported to this uh Central governmental agency in Leningrad during the siege. And he waited and waited and waited. And he was told to come back another day because they couldn't get to him. They were going to interview him. And he feared being arrested. So he comes back on that next appointed day and he waits again. And he goes up and he finally has the gumption to go up and ask where the person that's going to talk to him is. And they said, Oh, uh, never mind that he was arrested this morning. So <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I, I which sounds like an absurdist play, right?
0: It, it does, and the absurdities, of course, of the system were, were later uh, captured by, by many writers. But this is interesting because it's such an early uh, depiction of this with Rubashov and the Rubashovs and the Ivanovs, the old guard. I think uh, had. Because they, they were part of a group that had set this in motion, and for them, their actions they had debated. They were steeped in philosophy and history, uh, and they debated about what 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 policies to uh, to implement. And the as that generation was killed off, they were replaced with in the novel, the, the character Gletkin, whose very name sounds <laughs> kind of oddly um, uh, uh, like an automaton, um, they were replaced by these conformists, these th- these people who were simply uh, brainwashed by the party. And I think there's where that fear that, that, that you're talking about uh, is so evident um, as that As Stalin's uh, reign continued, the the fear uh, disseminated throughout the land in ways that that it had never uh, done before. Because in the 1920s, when the party was, um, after the Civil War, there was this blossoming of um, of this kind of explosion in the arts. um, And there there were lots of uh, free free thinking ideas. I mean, the, the sexual mores were uh also uh, the old sexual mores were challenged in a, in in many ways and you had uh people like mayakovsky uh you know standing and declaiming verses in uh in big stadiums uh you know imagine that a poet in a in a in a soccer stadium declaiming a verse you know that's uh but that that exuberance uh had all but uh Vanished uh, by by the late 1920s, early 1930s, as Stalin consolidated his power.
1: So let's switch gears now and talk about your role in this translation. You are the translator of this, and there is an interesting history to the different versions of this that exist. Um, before we talk about that history, let's talk about you and how you came to be selected as the translator.
0: Well, I owe that to Michael Scammell, who, who contacted me. I think he had been in touch with people at, at Columbia where he teaches, and, and they had given uh, him my name. And so he approached me, and as it happened, I was very familiar with the book, having read it in high school, and always felt it was a, an important book. And so I, I, I left at the chance to, to to translate it and um, am indebted to him and also the, the staff at Scribner, um, who, who were very gracious and uh, uh, everyone was it was it was a, it was a, a, a fun project if, if fun is the right word for a novel about a Bolshevik uh, in a prison
1: and how long did it take you uh, from beginning to end to do the actual translation
0: uh, several months uh, I, I can't put my finger on it exactly but but usually it takes me uh, several months to a year. Uh, depending on
1: what else is happening. And so this was originally published in 1940 based upon a translation of Kessler's girlfriend, who was an English woman, Daphne Hardy. And we learned from Scammell's introduction that she had apparently, thankfully, uh, begun a translation without permission or even the original, originally, uh, the knowledge of Kessler while she was uh, cohabiting with him in France in 1939
0: and 1940. That's right. Well, Kessler, of course, uh, was not going to stay in Nazi Germany. Um, you know, he, he, was, although he was born in Hungary, he, 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 he was, his German was his main language, uh, for most of his early life. And, uh, in his writing, um, as a, As a as a leftist as a Jewish leftist as a uh, as a a critic as someone who'd been in Spain uh, he would have been a prime target for the Nazi henchmen so he's living in Paris uh, with Daphne Hardy and then the war breaks out the Germans are right there at the uh, coming invading France and then next thing you know they're they're right outside Paris so he has to flee again. And they pick up everything and they rush away. And in the commotion, he lost the original manuscript. Meanwhile, she had c- uh, completed a translation and that she sent off to publishers in Britain. He sent something, he thought, to his publisher in Switzerland. Uh, but it was all lost. Uh, and at least so we thought. So, the book comes out in english uh, in nineteen forty I think, and then decades later and and only and that daphne hardy 's translation is the only version that the world knows, and so it was back translated into German, and the English translation served as the the main source for all other translations of the novel until a few years ago, a graduate student researching in a Swiss archive, discovered a manuscript. And this was the manuscript that Kessler had sent to Switzerland. It had been buried in in a publisher's archive, and it had some markings on it, some changes. And the Germans used that to reissue the novel uh, based on the original manuscript, based on the original German, instead of the back translation. And that German edition is what I translated uh, for this th- this current version
1: and the are there distinct differences between the hardy English translation and the original German translation that you translated
0: there are a few there the, they're mostly minor differences um, I think uh, that there are different choices as a a translator that that I made Um, there are however some significant differences in the in the in the versions Um, there is for instance uh, a a, a little passage on masturbation in in the prison that was not present in the original English Um, there are Differences of translations, such as in the in Daphne Hardy's version, which, as Michael uh, Scammell has pointed out, has served us very well, and it's uh, I believe that you know great novels uh, deserve many readings, and a translation is, after all, a, a type of reading. Uh, it, it, there she divides the chapters the first hearing the second hearing the third hearing but well, these hearings were really interrogations the, the German word "Verhör" is, is really an interrogation so there are differences such as that that are more differences of, of translation and I also was trying to trying to, to speed the novel along while capturing some of the uh, sharpness of uh, of, of the prose, um, and that the reader will have to <laughs> decide how well I managed that. But but the the novel itself has a different meaning now than it did when it first came out. You know, it's 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 it, it has a, a there are so many layers of, of meaning uh, since that it has acquired
1: since then. You mean it's a it has a different meaning in terms of the context of the Cold War and what we learn about how the Soviet Union actually operated that might not have been fully understood or well known in oh, nineteen forty.
0: That, that's correct. and and I think also it's it's almost it, it's moved into as the events have receded, in time, or as we have advanced in time further away from the events, the, the novel perhaps functions uh, more as a literary piece and an inspiration for reflection, as well as a, a a a study of those times. And as an instrument for reflection, it applies also more broadly. So, in some ways, it. It's, it's moved from I think the interpretations when it first came out with the show trial still happening made it fo- very very sharply focused on on that on, on those events those current events and now we look for well what can this mean for us today where do we see uh, ideas becoming entrenched as ideology where do we see people with the best intentions uh, becoming, uh, falling victim uh, to, to their to, to to their own actions, uh, where they justify actions that ultimately contradict the very ideals that they had set out to defend, and this is something that we see every day today. Uh, and I think the the novel then serves more, perhaps has more metaphoric uh, meaning today than it did then.
1: And certainly, by design, this is not, as you mentioned, the names uh, essentially sound Russian or Slavic in some sense, uh, but it is not expressly rooted in Stalinist uh, Russia or the Soviet Union. Uh, Stalin himself is never referred to; it's uh, number one, number one, that's right, uh, right. Who who is the uh, leader? And so that in and of itself takes it somewhat out of time and makes it more abstract and symbolic. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: So so I was I was struck by um, Scammell's introduction and what you just said a few minutes ago about you read it in high school and how this was a widely read book uh, in the United States. And in terms of its publication history, it was a Book of the Month Club selection. Uh, Also, Whitaker Chambers praised it, uh, the former communist who had become uh, outspoken against communism. And I was struck by that because I had never heard of this book until after college. It was never assigned to me in college. Uh, It was never assigned in high school. Uh, Whereas George Orwell's 1984 um, was definitely something I was well aware of. And so comment upon that. Uh, Was this assigned to you in high school or is it something you read during your high school years?
0: It was assigned. It was assigned reading. And a a, a lot of high schools, I think, uh, had it as assigned reading. And uh, that may date me, uh, but I think that it was. That book of the month selection, by the way, really launched, (laughs) really launched its career, I think. Uh, But in the. Oh, as late as I think into the '80s, it was frequently found on high school uh, curricula. And, uh, but I, my guess is that as um, the Cold War uh, became softer, achieved softer contours. That I think the displacement. It's interesting you mentioned Orwell. Uh, Orwell became kind of the go-to book uh, and and this one receded a bit. It may also be because the Kessler book does have these ruminations which are fairly philosophical in nature. And so it's it's a more difficult read, uh, more challenging, I should say, read uh, than the Orwell. And the Orwell is so... uh, Metaphorical, whereas this reading "Darkness at Noon" is your your reading is greatly enhanced if you know some of the history. So um, it it's I think um, you, you probably read Orwell in English class, um, but what where do where do English class classes and history <laughs> classes diverge in, in, in the curriculum? And that's a uh, and I think also the way that curricula have have changed over the years is is a important um, subject. I mean, to what extent historical, you know, t- has what is our historical awareness, and how is how does that change over over time?
1: I want to ask you uh, briefly about the philosophy of being a translator. Um, I've read of the so called tyranny of the translator. And I'm curious what your opinion of this um, debate is in regard to how, quote unquote, literal you should be versus what degree of license uh, in terms of choices that you have uh, and how that affected your translation of this, but also other works as well. Well,
0: um, in my mind, every book is different and i don't have a i don't have an ideology about translation and i try to listen to the voice or voices of a given book and i listen until i hear it in the original and then i reimagine it in english and the way that that Usually happens is um, I just sit with it for a while and and then the the, 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 I'm I'm thinking of the of the register of the book the tone what is the quality what are the uh, what are the words that place this in its time Uh, what about matters of class as speech reveals class and. So the the question of literalness, because I I think we're we're striving to convey something. Just like the novel itself is 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 more than the, the, the words on the page. There's the the emotions that it evokes, the thoughts that it inspires, and can I capture that? What that energy in the book and how best can I capture that energy? Well, that is the that is true to the original. And sometimes being true to the original means also recognizing that that energy is best served by. uh, By re reordering a sentence or even a paragraph. in some cases, uh, I've worked with authors who are very understanding, and we've agreed to cut out uh, a paragraph or substitute something. I mean, you're going to lose something in in one place. Well, you can counterbalance that by adding uh, something to make up for that in another place. So uh, I I don't I'm definitely not on the side of the uh, word for word literal uh, rendering.
1: And so um, sometimes a translation is more than just a translation. It's also kind of an edited work, different from the original.
0: Right. And we get into uh, a discussion about where does a translation, you know, how to define a translation, what is an adaptation. and But I think that it's a, a, a reimagining. Uh, I, I would compare it to a, a conductor. Uh, you, you're working, uh, obviously, with, in a different medium, but... Uh, you know, when you, uh, you you go to the symphony, you, you hear um, Brahms' Third Symphony, and you're, you're, every time you hear it, it's going to be different, um, obviously with a printed version. We, we don't have as many versions of Kessler's book as we do versions of, of Brahms' Third Symphony, but, uh, but the, the, the conductor is trying to uh, take this, this, this work and convey it, uh, in a way that gets that conveys the uh, the, the gist of the uh, of the piece, um, and, and so I think that's what uh, that's how I would view it, perhaps.
1: Well, lastly, I want to ask you about your own experiences uh, during the Cold War. It's my understanding you had spent some time in Eastern Europe, and so you have a little bit of personal familiarity, firsthand, with uh, the um, dictatorial governments in Eastern Europe. Can you give us a little bit of that uh, explanation for your background there?
0: Uh, yes, I spent several years in, in Poland in the last years of the communist regime. And by that point, it was um, obviously, um, uh, it, it, as the as the, my friends from South America would say, it was, you know, dicta blanda, not dictadura, but it was not, you know, it was not the oppressive... The, it was a different. It was a soft dictatorship, let's say, or a soft, uh, corrupt government. It was a government without a mandate, basically, and this was following martial law in Poland. And there had been a, a coup, and the Jaruzelski had taken over. So, and the party was in power, and the party did resort to its uh, to certain dirty tricks. And you could see it when I first got there. There were still. Uh, demonstrations on the streets that were being broken up um, uh, with uh, vigor um, by these riot police that the communist government had uh, sent in um, and they were mostly you know young people who were not so educated they were uh, often they'd been given alcohol and given their marching orders and uh, but yeah, I, ex- I experienced uh, kind of the tail end of of, of that, and um, I was directing plays. And every every time I uh, put on a play in those years, I would have to meet with the a, a censor, someone from the Office of Censorship. You know, which is uh, kind of an, it's it's amusing uh, to, to relate that now, but. Um, uh, so I did, I did indeed have some experience, and also, I think, certainly I never experienced anything remotely like, like this, but the vestiges of this remained in some of the language and also the corruption of the government, the, the arbitrariness by which someone in, let's say you're eligible for a scholarship, and someone in the Ministry of Education doesn't like you, and then they decide, well, I don't like this person they're not going to get that scholarship uh you know th- there's no it was just there was so much um, uh basic you know corruption uh and th- and the system was bankrupt in, in in many different ways uh there were however uh also some things that, that 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 system had somehow supported i would call it the the babies in the communist bathwater, such as uh on, in, at least in some places there was a uh, ongoing support for the arts there were some things that they you know that, that that those governments did accomplish in the name of this or that ideology but it doesn't it certainly does not excuse their uh, their fundamental uh
1: bankruptcy and of course these were always art that were in support of the state
0: no not necessarily um and there it, it varies we tend to think of the communist bloc as, as one that, that everything was the same, but at least in Poland, uh, the, uh, the after the original Solidarity, the first wave of Solidarity, and then the subsequent imposition of martial law, the the theaters were often allowed to uh, put on plays that were they're quite critical, and and there was this interesting interaction uh, writers. And the between the writers and the 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 state, uh, the, so satire became very advanced, and often the, the the plays. I think that the government was actually fairly clever because they were allowing this, whereas in places like East Germany, that they were there was the censorship was uh, more rigid. But these these plays. I mean, I remember going to a, a performance of uh, Beaumarchais', uh, Beaumarchais uh, Marriage of Figaro, and the actor uh, read a line and, and made a word sound like Valenza, like Lech Valenza, and there, this titter went through the audience. Now, now that play, there was really nothing <laughs> there was nothing worrisome to the state in that production, but but it kind of allowed the audience to let off a little steam, and I think that they that he realized that and um, so there was an interesting action and, and in, there are many uh, thoughts about the the role of censorship and how it, for some writers some writers developed their entire oeuvre uh, against the censor and when the system changed their their writing became less important they didn't have anyone to write against anymore um, others um, uh, were able to to move beyond that um, and so that, it's a very interesting uh, study, but that would be, that would be a, a, another discussion, I think.
1: Well, the book is Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, and we've been joined today by its translator for the latest edition of it, recently rediscovered in 2015 and published in 2019, Philip Baim. Philip, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you.